Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the show. It does feel like it's very difficult to avoid the fact that England may have played a football match yesterday. Yes, an eight-goal stunner. Now, Stephen, eight goals. Well, Well, eight goals altogether. Two of them were scored by Iran. Yes, indeed. (laughs) There were eight goals in a football match, which is quite unusual. You know, I don't know what the average is in a football match. Not very many. I always think they should make the goals wider so 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 more are scored. What? what? It's such a game of fight. Anyway, (laughs) Stephen, give us your thoughts on the World Cup. Were you glued to the TV yesterday? I was not. This is not in my uh, thing. It does not spark joy, as Mario Kondo would once say. Look, you know. It is absolutely fascinating to see it play out. I think the the front page of the mirror um, managed to draw in both the good parts of the excitement around the game, but also uh, Pride and Prejudice was their headline. Uh, also, of course, all the controversy off the pitch as well, particularly to do with the, the one love armbands that we were talking about on the show yesterday as well. Um, instead of the joy around the World Cup, I found something to depress myself with. Would you like to know? Yes, do tell us. Well, let's look at the latest latest economic forecasts of the UK, which oh. are, frankly, not very good. The OECD saying that Britain will be plunged to the bottom of the group of seven league table for growth in the next two years as high inflation and interest rates uh, squeeze spending. And one sort of quite frankly terrifying consequences of this is there's a, a piece by Helen Chandler Wild uh, on the terminal today about how renters in London are paying for their lodgings essentially by uh, household chores and that people are signing up to agencies which involves having to do part of their you know pay off part of their rent by doing something like dog walking or cleaning or or things at home and it's just another sign of how people are have less money to spend and they are finding ways to try and live in very expensive cities like London. So it brings us right back down to earth, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, speaking of, the CBI conference is still ongoing in Birmingham. Rishi Sunak, of course, was there yesterday. It's Labour leader Keir Starmer's turn today. He's trying to woo those business leaders at the conference. Let's hear a little of what he had to say in Birmingham earlier. Britain deserves better. A new partnership for prosperity. The path to a greener, fairer, more dynamic country to higher wages, higher skills, higher productivity, to leading the world on the greatest challenge facing our planet, to give working people a sense of hope, aspiration and possibility once again. Well, it does seem like one subject that is coming up a lot at the CBI conference is our old friend Brexit. Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, said yesterday that under his leadership, the UK would not pursue a relationship with the EU that requires aligning with European laws. Our Lizzie Burden was speaking to the CBI President Brian uh, McBride earlier. He told her that the UK would have to work much more closely with the EU and that the country's uh, missing out on trade deals with the likes of the US because of issues over the Northern Ireland Protocol. 
all. Well, our political reporter, Alan Milligan, has written, uh, co-written a great piece about how the thorny issues around Brexit uh, are back on the political agenda after, some would argue, a very brief absence. Uh, a new poll of polls, for example, showing that public opinion has turned uh, against Brexit. Alan's with us now. Alan, has there been a real shift in attitudes towards Brexit? Well, we've had two polls in the last week, one from elections guru John Curtis showing that 57% of Brits now reject Brexit, and then one from YouGov showing a, a similar amount, um, 56% believe Brexit was wrong. Interestingly, 19% of those actually voted for Brexit, but now regret their choice. And I think what's interesting is I spoke to John Curtis about this, who said there wasn't one there hasn't been one watershed moment where people have thought, oh, maybe this wasn't a great idea. It's been a gradual, slow erosion of support for Brexit. The governments, um, the Conservative government's unpopularity at the moment, um, they're trailing behind in the polls and they're very much attached to Brexit. Um, and also the demographics of this um, young people who weren't of voting age when the referendum happened, but now are, but also. Um, I think a big part of this is those um, really gloomy economic forecasts that you referenced before, um, including from the OBR that we had last week. Um, you know, we're seeing um, an incredibly high tax burden, a prolonged recession, um, uh, all, all the growth and the prosperity that was promised in Brexit has not come through. In fact, quite the opposite. And I think that's having a real effect on public opinion. Ellen, isn't the truth, though, whatever the polls say, the government is not going to want to open this can of worms or go anywhere near this can of worms. On Sunday, we had that Sunday Times report, which uh, started all this off. And then on Monday, the government came out in full swing saying we are not un unpicking our relationship with the EU. It's, it's not going to happen, is it, anytime soon? Well, our understanding is that it was Jeremy Hunt who's privately said that the UK should seek a closer trading arrangement with the EU. He, he said something similar on, on the radio last week um, in, time, in line with the Sunday Times report. Um, and I thought it was interesting how quickly that was um, denied by Rishi Sunak at the CBI conference Um he clearly, um, number 10, win damage control over these comments because of the uproar that it created among Brexit, Brexit supporting MPs, for example, people like David Frost, the former EU negotiator, even Nigel Farage. Um, clearly, they wanted to do damage control on this very quickly. Um, we've spoken to a number of people on the UK side of things and on the EU side of things who don't see um, a dramatic policy shift happening anytime soon. Um, I've spoken to those involved on both sides of the Northern Ireland protocol talks um, who were actually surprised by the reports. Um, and to, uh, a couple of EU sources told us that this wasn't on offer, this Swiss-style arrangement wasn't on offer from them. I think in terms of if we actually see any tangible change, the only active negotiations that are happening between the UK and the EU on Brexit are over the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I think if we're going to see any tangible shift in approach, it will be through the incremental um, decisions that are made through those talks. 
Yeah, I mean, I think when when I saw the headline about the Swiss-style arrangement, a part of me thought, who would want that? It's an absolute mess of bilateral agreements and something that would be extremely complicated to manage, not quite besides what you're saying about the fact that it's not even, uh, even being considered on the table. Politically, for Rishi Sunak, you know, you talked about some of the criticism there coming out about uh, the reports that there could be a move on this. Does he have any room for manoeuvre on this issue? I mean, as ever the Prime Minister of the Conservative Party is boxed in by the Conservative Party. I mean, there was a there was a, a lot of uproar on the Conservative MP's WhatsApp group over the weekend after this report. Always for example, a hotbed former, for gossip, yeah. Always a hotbed, always always a good place to check the temperature um of of kind of policy shifts among among MPs and former cabinet minister Simon Clark um expressed his concern that the Treasury has long held an ambition to align um, the UK with EU rules. Um, And then there's been more uproar among Conservative MPs more privately. Um, A lot a lot of Conservative MPs from the 2019 intake from that from that red wall area of the UK um, are support Brexit. I mean, that's largely why they were voted in in 2019. Um, but I will say that the ERG, which is this kind of um, faction in the Conservative Party, which um, brought down Theresa May over her Brexit deal, um, is not the force that it once was. Um, a couple of um, former chairs of the ERG, for example, Chris Heaton Harris, Steve Baker was a prominent mem- is a prominent member of the ERG, and now in ministerial positions, directly involved in talks over Northern Ireland. They're in the Northern Ireland office, um, and last month they couldn't agree which um, candidate to back in the in the race to be prime minister. So there is that, but the Conservative Party will never not. And be a difficult place to discuss Brexit. Ellen, we're about two years out from a general election. Do you see Labour having the uh, having, having the balls, if you'll pardon the expression, to go into the next election? The promising, gumption. Uh, the gumption. Thank you, Stephen. That's exactly the word I was more looking polite. for. Carry on. Uh, uh, go to the next election <laughs> with uh, a slightly more nuanced approach to Europe, perhaps some sort of closer alignment, or are they just going to steer clear on that as well and not risk it? I think they do have a more nuanced approach. They, um, I mean, we heard from Kirstama even just an hour ago about this. Um, he said that they don't want to have a Swiss model because they don't want to go back to the EU, um, which means not going back to the single market or customs union. He actually, a couple of months ago, spoke at the Irish embassy about this exact issue. Um, but he also thinks that we our Brexit deal isn't very good and that relations do need to be repaired. I think, I think Labour are walking a, a, a really fine line between wanting to regain popularity in the red wall that they so disastrously lost in 2019 because almost entirely because of brexit um and labor's like not clear policy around it um but also wanting to have a better relationship with the eu for the sake of the economy but also um because they want to criticise the Conservative approach to it, I think. I think in an ideal world, the Labour would Labour Party would have a less hardline approach to Brexit. There would be more compromise under the Conservative Party without doing anything 
uh, mm. radicals such as rejoining the customs union or the single market. Yeah, of course, a very complicated political issue as well. Ellen Milligan, again, thank you so much for your time and bringing us through all the complex aspects of this issue. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Our next guest is a former leader of one of the UK's main political parties. When he resigned five years ago, he said he felt that remaining faithful to Christ was incompatible with leading his party. Well, he's now co-written a book on the subject called A Mucky Business, Why Christians Should Get Involved in Politics. Tim Farron, former Lib Dem leader and current MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale in Cumbria. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Now, before we talk about your book, I'm just keen to get your views on a couple of the day's uh, big issues. Uh, The PM says that the UK is not going to pursue any relationship with the EU that involves aligning with European laws. Given the Brexit vote and all those uh, years of debates, isn't that the right approach? Well, I think it's there's such a lot of focus from the government politically on trade deals, and yet we've ignored the fact that the government concluded a really very bad trade deal with our biggest international market. And it's always going to be our biggest international market because it's like just a few miles away and it's huge and it's pretty well to do. So whatever uh, language is used by Rishi Sunak and others, there's no doubt whatsoever that if we want to do something that will improve the economy rapidly, tackle inflationary pressures, make British industry more competitive, deal with the red tape and uh, generally speaking, give our, our country a chance of some prosperity rather than some doom and gloom, you're going to have to have a much better deal with Europe than we currently have. Now, what that looks like, that's open discussion. But there's, it turns out that the government that was incompetent at putting together a budget was also incompetent in negotiating a deal with Europe. It's a bad one and it hampers British business. How do you think they, the government should be approaching this then? Is it a question of going for a whole new deal or simply working within the framework of what they have as the head of the CBI, Tony Danker, said yesterday they should be doing? Well, a new government should be seeking to renegotiate a, a deal which is is better for the UK, um, and that would mean removal of red tape. I mean, the the absence of tariffs does not mean we've got free uh, trade with Europe. We have red tape and bureaucracy and all sorts of friction at every single direction. It adds massively to the cost of import, massively to the, the cost of exports, and therefore it means that we're exporting an awful lot less to Europe than we did. And there's, you know, it's a, only a fool would think that we're ever, ever, ever going to compensate for a fraction of that by deals with countries on the other side of the world. Good to do deals with countries on the other side of the world, but don't ever think that they're going to replace what we've lost with Luxembourg, never mind with the rest of the continent. Um, So clearly, if you are going to be a hard-headed, pragmatic, 
prime minister of a government that is you know, seeking to make Britain more prosperous and help business, then you're going to want to have to confess that your predecessor but one concluded a really bad deal for Britain and do something about it. The Labour leader's just been speaking to the CBI. Do you agree with Keir Starmer that Britain needs to end its reliance on migrant labour? I think that Britain has always had some reliance on migrant labour. And the question is whether we think that we want to listen to business. And the idea, for example, let's look at my pact, which I I accept is quite extreme. Uh, We're not reliant on cheap migrant labour and therefore forcing um, the locals to, to, to take lower wages. It's quite the opposite. The difficulty is in hospitality and tourism, uh, you know, 80% of the entire Lake District uh, local working age population is already working in hospitality and tourism. If you're a, a an industry in an area which is one of the smallest populations, but has the second biggest footfall of any visit destination in the country, then of course you need help from outside. So I think we should absolutely be having an education and training skill strategy that is nationwide, not just leaving it all to employers, which this government does not have. And if it achieves that, then the demand for migrant labour may be less. But to cut off that whilst not addressing the skills shortage is just doubly stupid. We are have new figures out from the OECD looking at the situation facing the British economy. Going to be bottom of the league, the OECD says, in the G7 group uh, for the next two years due to high inflation and interest rate squeezing spending. So a very grim picture uh, for the mm. economy ahead. Is the government taking the right decisions In the autumn statement we had last week, this focus on financial stability, calming the markets, making sure that the UK can still borrow internationally at reasonable rates. Is that the right approach, do you think? Well, obviously, the the work of the government since the calamitous budget at the end of September has been to try to undo the damage, reputational damage for the UK internationally, but particularly with regard to the markets, because that then has a material impact on inflation, the price of the pound, value of the pound, on the value of pensions going forward and uh, mortgage rates and all the rest of it. So these things are significant. Um, but the, and the rhetoric appears to have uh, stopped things getting any worse. But the budget itself, I think, last week is quite dangerous. There's no doubt that in September we had a a budget which was reckless. But I would argue now that we're seeing a budget which is panic-stricken. By the government's own uh, announcement, by their own admission, Jeremy Hunt himself said that we were now entering recession. The Conservative chair of the Treasury Select Committee said only last night that she reckoned that 80% of the inflationary pressure was external and not from the UK. Therefore... Um, Those two things being the case, how stupid to be reducing public spending when you're on the brink of a recession, when you know that isn't the thing that's causing inflation anyway. How stupid. And what we're going to end up with, therefore, is what we used to call, sadly, in the 70s, stagflation. Uh, We get inflation, rising prices, but, but no growth and the opposite of growth. And therefore, we end up with unemployment and the worst of all possible worlds. So there's no doubt the UK has to pay off its debts, but uh, the you don't start doing it at a point where the markets have pretty much calmed down and at the point where reducing public spending in real terms would actually make the recession quicker, more certain, more longer, uh, more longer and deeper. Tim, let's talk about your book. Why, why should Christians get involved with politics? Well, I guess the hypothesis for me is somebody who is a Christian. Um, I mean, the, the book is called A Mucky Business. And the reason it's called A Mucky Business is because 
I got involved in politics as a 16-year-old. I became a Christian as an 18-year-old just before I went to university. I'm at a Christian Union house party, which is every bit as exciting as it sounds, um, <laughs> when I was 18. And there's a lad there I was just chatting to over a brew who just said, Tim, why as a Christian are you involved in politics? It's a mucky business. Now, I don't remember what my answer was to him at the point. Uh, at that point, it probably was just deflecting and not very well thought through. But in recent times, I really have thought about it quite a lot. There are reasons why Christians don't engage with politics, or if they do, they do it in a wrong way, I would say. So the reasons that they don't get involved is that they think it's a mucky business. They think it is a, a place that is racked with school duggery and compromise, and it's a terrible thing that we should keep away from it. Or you might think with your faith in the eternal that what happens in this temporary world isn't that important, so you give it a, a hit. Or you might be, as some Christians are, um, very suspicious of uh, I hate to use the phrase mainstream media and therefore susceptible to fake news. So for those reasons, it's not that I want all Christians to stick a rosette on and stand for parliament. Some might, but and it'd be good if they did. But I'm more concerned about the 97 percent, let's say, who will never do that, that they should be informed about politics. They don't necessarily need to form the same opinions that I've got politically as a left of centre liberal Democrat, but they should form opinions that are wise based on evidence. And in short, how should Christians think about politics? Well, don't panic because yes, it's true in the, against the backdrop of eternity, these things are passing shifting sands and all men and women are like grass of the field. They flower for a day and then they're gone. So we shouldn't panic about these things, but we should desperately care because politics is about people. And if people are made in the image of God, then they are of enormous dignity and importance. And we should want to serve them and care for them during their time on this earth. Um, in, in terms of the, the direct political interaction or, or interaction between religion and politics, one issue that, for example, Labour is talking about abolishing the House of Lords. There are Church of England bishops in the House of Lords. That's that's kind of one direct and, and obvious mm. overlap. If the House of Lords was to be abolished, that would remove that religious involvement in policy making. Would that be a loss, do you think, to the process? Uh, possibly. I mean, two things to say about that. For, for, first of all, I think that uh, I personally don't favour an established religion. I don't see what the value is in it. Well, I mean, there are there is some value in terms of institutions and 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 so on. But I think that uh, I, I don't think you can legislate to make people believe one thing or another. And I also think it kind of restrains the church and stops it doing its job properly, becomes a kind of piece of the furniture of the state. But the same thing to say is, I mean, religion and politics, we've got to be a bit careful that we don't bracket it and put it in a kind of corner, because people who have you know, a, a, an avowed faith and believe in God or a God or a supernatural of some kind, that's basically the, the kind of cornerstone of a worldview, but everybody's got a worldview everybody, um, whether they count themselves atheist, a believer in their faith of one kind or another, brackets atheists have faith, they have faith that there's no God, and all this can't happen by chance. And that is but I think, faith, and, and, but to, and it affects how you think and act. Mm. Tim, I think the fear, though, is uh, that people will find a replication of situations like we've seen in the United States, where there will be pushback on issues like abortion rights ostensibly for what people say is for their religious views that's the fear people have when you do have an interaction of religion and politics yes and we don't need to look too hard in the 20th century to see what happens when we have an interaction of atheism and politics you know um uh, <laughs> i mean you know pol pot stalin you know um so the, the point is not that um the, the source of people's 
um, uh, worldviews is that they all have a worldview and we should analyze them on the basis of their of its content and and the danger is i think it's it's a it's a it's an understandable uh, position people have reached but i don't think it's a defensible one the idea that worldviews that have any kind of religious connotation are to be limited but a worldview that doesn't have a religious connotation, that's fine. The idea that somebody who has read and believes every word of Milton Friedman and thinks that free market and monetarism is the answer to everything, that that person can take all the things that have formed their worldview from that book into the chamber with them, but you can't take the Quran or the Bible or the Torah in, so to speak. That's but how do you then how do you then limit the extremes of those views? I mean, the you know the the question of universal human rights are they you know are they being limited? on a question of religious basis? Well, I mean, there are no universal human rights if there's no God. End of story. Um, because where do they come from? Well, if we have codified are, them in international agreements. Uh, That's kind of the point. We, we have, but the, but the point is, without there being a supernatural... And it's actually, this is not the reason, it's not a fundamental reason why I b- believe, uh, and I'm a Christian, there's lots more reasons than this, but it's actually quite good piece of corroborating evidence. If there is no supernatural then there are no human rights of any kind whatsoever. They're an accident. They are a passing fancy. And in the next generation, they may be wrongs and some other things might be right. The very concept of there being rights is entirely, I would say, um, first, first of all, in, a, uh, in, in, in the argument for them being in existence at all, can, they can only have any enduring significance if there's some kind of supernature. If, if, we, if we believe these things because it's evolutionary useful, well, look, it's, it's the survival of the fittest, not the survival of the nicest. So there's no evolutionary explanation for human rights at all. Now, you can be an atheist and believe in them, but don't think that they have any lasting meaning. They're only, they're only, they only have any value for the time that you can convince people to think they're a good idea. Once they're not a good idea, they're not rights anymore. But I believe passionately in human rights because I think that good and evil, right and wrong, they're woven into us by a supernatural. I also think, by the way, if you look at the language of rights, even, even the language that we use to criticise Christians and the church in the West it's an exclusively Christian language. The idea of equality, the idea of there being rights, the need for justice, looking after the oppressed. These are not things that happen naturally within human societies. They're pretty much based upon a Judeo-Christian understanding of there being there being a, a lawgiver who we must obey. Tim, why, why is religion so often toxic in, in British politics? And why is it so difficult for politicians? You are, if you don't mind me saying so, I think one of the most articulate MPs in the House of Commons, but but you you really struggled with this, didn't you? You, you struggled with reconciling your beliefs and and, uh, and your politics as, as Lib Dem leader. Well, I think uh, which way to talk about that first? Let's talk about me, and then let's talk about the wider issues because they're more important. But with me, frankly, I think my main problem was a lack of wisdom. Um, the reality is that I was pushed and pressed on issues which were you know potentially sensational about what does the Bible say about sex, sexuality, and all the rest of it. The bottom line is that the Bible has very, very difficult things for all of us to hear. Um, if the, if if you if you and conceive of a God who only approves of the things that you do and think already. Dawkins is right about that God. They're a delusion. You've just made them up. If there's a real God, they're bound to disturb you. They're bound to contradict you. And the question is whether you're humble enough to accept that contradiction or or decide that you know better than God. But I don't think I articulated that sort of stuff very well. And I came to the opinion that, you know, I, I either carry on as Lib Dem leader, constantly having to bat this stuff away, um, and therefore I'll be a terrible leader, 
or I kind of have to, you know, go down the kind of theological rabbit holes of people and then, you know, potentially end up being a very bad Christian. So I thought, well, I'll, let's not do either of those things. I'll, I'll, I'll step down. But I don't think that means that there's no place for Christians in, in politics. It just means, you know, you need to be wiser than me and maybe I can help people by my experience. But in terms of toxicity, I, I would argue that in the UK, um, it's not so bad. I think that, that there are, for example, I meet every week with a group of Christian MPs from at least four different parliamentary parties, sometimes five or six. Um, and we've got good friendships from across the spectrum. And I don't think that Christianity is politicised in a partisan way in this country the way it is in the States. And it is in the States. And the odd thing is the states are technically secular, whilst we're technically, you know, have a church uh, of a, a state church. And yet they behave in a very different way to us. One thing to understand it's not the only thing to understand. But the one thing to understand about American Christianity and politics is that it doesn't have an awful lot to do with faith. Um, if you were to come across an, an evangelical Christian self-described in the UK, you could be 99.9, no, 100 percent certain that person goes to church regularly. However, um, 50%, only 50% of those people who are white evangelicals self-described in the state actually go to church. In other words, it's not a theological descriptor. It's not a descriptor of their faith. It's a, it's a cultural descriptor. And alongside that status will be a belief in having the right to bear arms and wave flags a lot and do beastly to asylum seekers and all those kind of things. Things, by the way, which are anathema to Christians, certainly the latter. Uh, so I think we're not to completely confuse um, uh, actual faith in Christ with people who profess it sometimes. Tim Farron, former Lib Dem leader, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics today. Tim's book, A Mucky Business, Why Christians Should Get Involved in Politics, is published this week. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.